Is this something that you want used as part of your treatment or are there issues that you want to discuss? Are there people that would be helpful for you in your recovery? I think across the board, even in the most kind of outcome-based scientific places in our society, that people are understanding that just like we have added into the psychological dimensions of how somebody's doing or the emotional dimensions, they're adding in those spiritual dimensions as well. Welcome to The Work in Between, the podcast that explores the topics and daily actions that get us to our health-related goals. Whether you're trying to lose weight, get more fit, or improve your mental, emotional, or spiritual health, you're in the right place. In 2021, I was diagnosed with diabetes and was morbidly obese. I was already a three-time cancer survivor, so I knew I had to do something to turn my life around. So I did. I lost over 100 pounds and began transforming my life inside and out. I'm living my most purposeful and intentional life, and I want you to live yours too. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. I'm your host, Gretchen Holmes, and this is The Work in Between. If you've dealt with or are dealing with a serious illness like cancer or navigating debilitating chronic pain, as millions are, or if you are obese or recently diagnosed with diabetes and seeking treatment, you know how overwhelming and scary it can be. Dealing with all of the hospital visits, the medical terminology, all of the different health providers, the treatments, the pain, the exhaustion, Well, it's unimaginable, unless you've been through it. Then there's watching your family and friends go through it with you, or your loss of identity as you negotiate a new version of yourself as patient, or even survivor after a cancer diagnosis, or after an accident or stroke limits what you are able to do. Not surprisingly, sometimes along with all of this comes a crisis of faith, or our spirituality is severely questioned. I'm sure you can imagine how excited I am to talk about all of this and more with my guest, Dorothy Dixon Rischel, PhD. Dr. Rischel has been a practicing clinical psychologist for over 30 years, where she works with patients to help them cope with medical issues such as cancer, strokes, chronic pain, and weight management. She focuses on the intersection of faith and spirituality with mental and physical well-being. Dorothy is also an ordained Methodist minister. Welcome to this show, Dorothy. Oh, thank you, Gretchen. I'm so happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Me too. So spirituality and faith is such a critical part of our lives, especially as it relates to our health. I'm excited to explore these issues with you and find out what we can do to make sure we're focusing on our whole selves, not just the physical. So let's get started. Spirituality and faith and how it impacts our health is a topic most of us don't generally talk about. Well, you do, but many of us don't. 
I do, yes. <laughs> One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was so I could explore the mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of our health journey, not just the physical, because we know all of these other facets of our lives impact our health too. So let's start with, how do you define spirituality? I define spirituality as that part of ourself that is our identity and in our identity that's transcending into our relationships with others and the, the connection that we have with those spiritual realities beyond ourselves. So that definition of spirituality is that integration of our whole selves and that identity that we share beyond our bodies, beyond our emotions, beyond our actions, beyond our thoughts, and touches into that transcendence. So does that also include things like what we think our purpose is or what we think we're supposed to be doing? Is that part of that as well? Absolutely. Ideally, what we'd have is that our purpose and our actions and our mission, our vocation would be related to our ultimate values and our identity would be grounded in that ultimate belief, our core beliefs as to what the world is and what our place is in it. So how have you seen spirituality and faith play a role in our health? Because you work with patients that have experienced all sorts of health-related issues, some very acute, some more chronic. So how have you seen these two things play out? What you were talking about in that introduction, which really was very helpful and very broad, but I think that what health problems will do is interrupt that connection and that sense of identity. It will change often what our roles are, as you were talking about, maybe from caregiver to care receiver, or from professional to patient, and some of those kinds of things. So who we see ourselves in relationship to one another, and who we see ourselves in relationship to society, and also to God, uh, however we see God, is critical to our well-being and our sense of health. When there's a change in that, when there's a break, say, for example, a stroke, and someone can now no longer communicate as they once did, or maybe they can no longer provide for someone as they did, that's going to change their understanding of who they are in relationship to those that they love the most, but also to society. So looking back at what the core beliefs are, where is your identity grounded and where it is that you have value often is, as you said, an unstated, but very relevant piece of how people are going to heal. So how do you go about helping your patients aligned with their values? Because there are a lot of people, I think, who maybe haven't given a whole lot of thought to this necessarily, though someone who I know very well has said, if you don't know what your values are, you look at what has really, really angered you because somebody has stomped on your values. But I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily, or they're not able to necessarily articulate them 
So how do you help guide people to identify those and then try to help them align? Part of what I think we offer to each other is we listen to each other's stories as we enter into the experience that people may share with us as they're describing their life or maybe they're describing their symptoms, they're describing what their frustrations are. We start seeing what some of those values are. So part of my work as a psychologist is to try to help them name those so that there's something that they can understand and identify how they want to move towards certain goals. So identifying what those values are. Sometimes it's very easy when people have a deep sense of their own faith, or maybe it's defined by a certain faith community or faith tradition, then it's easy to kind of tap into those and talk about how that relates to what they're going through right now. Other times it is more existential to help people identify what it is, like you said, that sense of when is there an injustice? Where is there a frustration? Or on the flip side, what do you do with your time when you don't owe it to somebody else? You know, where do you spend your time? There is your treasure. What is important to you? What brings you joy? So oftentimes, even in the midst of significant medical changes, significant functional changes, we will talk about where do we find joy? Where is joy for you? What makes you smile? What makes you laugh? And so we talk about those things in a way that can, can call someone to remember their hope and remember the places that life has been good for them so we can try to reestablish that. I like that, to remember their joy, because I think sometimes when there's severe illness or sickness or whatever it is, I think sometimes we lose track of that. So when people are diagnosed with an illness, they tend to become that illness. Mm. It tends to take center stage, right? Which can rob us of our identities or at least change them. So you just spoke about how you have seen this a little bit in your practice, but how do we even make sense of embracing these new identities without it becoming everything about us? I know in my case, Having had cancer three times, believe me, I identify as a cancer patient, as a cancer survivor. And when you're going through something, that is where the spotlight is. How do you help patients not just become whatever it is that has happened to them? And again, I, I talked about going back into the story mm -hmm. of your life to look at, yes, to be able to express what that frustration is of being a cancer patient or a stroke survivor and to talk about how life has changed, but then also to look at what is the story before? What is it that was a value? What do you pride yourself on? How do other people see you? And then you also want to do that relationally. So I think even if we're dealing with ourselves or we're dealing with a loved one, to try to not just focus our conversation on the illnesses and the treatments, but also to look at that wider context of what we share. And so we do that in therapy. Over the years, I've done a lot of that in group. People could have the opportunity. These are patients in a physical rehab. They would have the opportunity to identify themselves 
what's important to them, a mother, perhaps working in this particular way or someone who likes classic cars, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, but to really talk about the things that have filled their life in the past so that you don't lose that in the midst of being a, a patient. Yeah. I think we have to watch our language too, mm-hmm. Gretchen. You know, I think often there's been a movement in our society that we don't talk about people who may have disabilities mm-hmm. by their disability, but we sure. talk about them as a person who's a wheelchair user, that we talk about someone who has a visual impairment instead of a blind person. Right. I think the same way we've got to think about ourselves and think about the others that we're interacting with, that this is a person with cancer or a person who has had an amputation, not the amputee. Right. And, That's and, very and, powerful because how we frame our identity matters as to how we move through life. Yeah. I'm right? a dialysis patient instead of I'm a person who uses dialysis or has this schedule, you know, has to fit dialysis into my day every day. Yeah, no, excellent point. I think that helps maybe disempower the illness or the sickness or the whatever it is that we're dealing with. I remember when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I started talking about it out loud pretty much with anybody who would hear it because in my mind, the more I talked about it, the less power it had over me. It certainly was real enough. That wasn't the problem. It's just that I didn't want it to become the only thing about me. So I guess I felt if I controlled the narrative that at least I had some power over it. I don't I don't even know if any of that makes sense, but it's what I did and I've done it ever since because even the second time I got cancer, and third time, I think it's really important to... Well, for me, meet it head on. I just, that's how I had to handle it. But how I approached it just was not to shy away from it. I just, to me, became just part of who I was, not all of who I was. Right. And I think that encompassing all of it is really where the crux comes and and maybe the finesse, because it is important to tell the story. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's where I started. I think hearing the story, listening, understanding it with one another and even to ourselves, it's a place that journaling can make a lot of difference to tell the story, but also put it into the context of the whole life. And sometimes we miss the mark one way or the other. We don't want to be on any side of that spectrum that we're either ignoring it and pretending that it doesn't exist, or it becomes everything that we are. And that can be disenfranchising too. Yeah, one of the hardest things for me was watching my family go through cancer with me. And I've often talked about the harder part of the journey for me was looking into their eyes and seeing how scared they were. I, for some reason, even though I was stage four, never thought I was going to die. And obviously I did not. But the harder part was seeing the pain that was in their eyes. Do you work with families too? Or Sure. And often we will when we do grief work. And grief is not just when we lose somebody that we love. I heard you talking about that on another one of your podcasts. It's also all sorts of losses that we can have. 
And grief can be when someone we love is having to go through a trial or we're scared that they may not continue to live with us. So I think that it is important for them to be able to share family members, loved ones, to share their side of that grief as well as the person who's facing the illness. I wonder too, if that's part of the reason that a lot of times we don't see patients isolating themselves because it becomes hard to look into the eyes of someone you love and see that sadness or that fear or the desperation to try to fix it. That's a good question. I think that you know, at some point, I and I love my family very much and, and miss them terribly, but it was harder for me, like I said, to watch them go through it to the point where I started to get a little angry because I thought, well, wait a minute. And it wasn't because they ever directly put it upon me. They did not. They, man, they were stoic and they were there and they did everything they possibly could ever do. My younger brother came and lived with me and cooked for me when mm. I was practically bedridden as they had to deal with thyroid cancer back in the day. And they had to take mm. you off your meds and you just couldn't drive and you had to be on a special diet. And, and it was, you get a mind fog. So you couldn't put two words together. Of course, I was in a PhD program at the time, which didn't help, but no. but he came down, he stood right by me. My whole family was extraordinary that way. There was no manipulation there. There was no, they're playing the victim. It just, that was not that. But sometimes I got angry because I thought, I can't carry my cancer and you guys too. I, right. you know, I assume some people felt, it didn't last long, but I expect sometimes people feel that way. I have absolutely heard that numerous times over the course of my career that folks are like, I'm the one that's going through this. And sometimes, you know, kind of what we need to help folks understand that everybody that care in your community, your closest circle, everybody's going through this. But what can we do to lean on each other instead of one person, either way, on either side uh, of the need, having to carry or hide? I think that's the other thing that sometimes happens is that we hide from each other the struggle because yes. uh, you don't want to make it worse on them. They don't want to make it worse on you. And so everybody is kind of tiptoeing around in addition to facing whatever the illness is. And like you said, that burden mentally and physically of trying to get better and fight, you've also got to tiptoe around and make sure you don't make it worse on anybody else. And my experience has been that when we come together and we really talk about it, that it just is like a breath of air. There's some oxygen that comes back into the room that we can breathe together instead of just passing the mask to one another yeah. at various times. I can absolutely imagine that to be true because I think when we, when we articulate our fears and we articulate whatever the feelings are that we're having, then I think we probably have some clarity for a little while until we get all messed up again. Right. And we have to do it over and over again. But it also, because when we talk about those fears, it names it so that we can either decide 
to live with it and just bear it for a while, or maybe we can make some changes that would minimize that threat in some way. I imagine that there's a lot of families trying to navigate this right now and are struggling with that. And so I would guess that you certainly would recommend people talk about it. Are there techniques or things that you could recommend on how to approach it? If they're not seeing a Dr. Rischel, I don't, you know, what, how do they navigate that? I think that sometimes we don't use the resources that are there. You know, we do have a lot of people who are in faith communities and sometimes their faith leaders are very good at sitting with them and making these kinds of discussions. There are some resources that are there. For example, hospice uses a book across the country called The Five Wishes that can sometimes make a difference for people. And just the question, how is this for you? How is this going for you? Help me understand what it's like for you? Very simple question, but something in that invites someone to share their own experience. So the research is pretty clear that spirituality and faith in the healthcare world matters. It affects healthcare outcomes, physically, mentally, emotionally, etc. And many patients want it as part of their healthcare experience. Yes. Are we getting better at addressing it in the healthcare world? I believe so. It, just because it is one of the aspects of psychosocial, emotional, spiritual well-being that we address. I think that typically there will be a box or a question for many people about their spirituality. Is it important to them? Is this something that you want used as part of your treatment? Or are there issues that you want to discuss? Are there people that would be helpful for you in your recovery? I think across the board, even in the most kind of outcome-based scientific places in our society, that people are understanding that just like we have added into the psychological dimensions of how somebody's doing or the emotional dimensions, they're adding in those spiritual dimensions as well. Yeah. And as you said, the research is very clear that people who are able to draw on their faith actually do better with treatments. And you know, there's all sorts of ways that science may try to describe that, but how it happens isn't nearly as important as that it happens. And the fact that it makes a difference for people, not only in the outcomes of their treatments, but also in their satisfaction levels and how well they feel as they're going through the struggles that will face us all. Not everybody necessarily, I think, will be comfortable bringing up some of these things, like saying, I would like to have my doctor pray with me before surgery, or I really would like to have my rabbi come in and talk with me, or whatever it is. What's your advice or your suggestions to help people have that or start that conversation or bring it up if they're facing? some of these issues, how do they, how do they bring it up? Because I don't think everybody would necessarily be comfortable. I think that part of that in the same way that we may claim that we're 
a cancer survivor or have been a survivor of trauma in some way to be able to say, I am a person whose spirituality is important to me. And I do want that to be a part of whatever I'm doing. I think people can say that pretty clearly to folks that, especially if the provider sometimes opens that window a little bit to ask, are there spiritual practices that would be helpful for you in this recovery? I think, you know, medical, psychological, all sorts of providers are now looking at how mindfulness makes a difference, teaching relaxation, teaching breathing, imaging, uh, meditation, all those sorts of things. So when we open up that, Sometimes that's a place to say, well, I would like to do that from a Christian perspective, or I learned to do that in my Hindu upbringing. I really do think that to kind of claim our space and say, this is important to me in the same way someone might say, my family is important to me. I want them to be a part of this decision making, or there are financial constraints with this. So we need to be aware of what the economics are of that particular treatment. I think we have to all realize that we have every right to bring up any issue, especially in a healthcare situation that is making us uncomfortable or that would make us feel better, and that those conversations are actually quite normal. That yes. that you know, nurses and doctors and and techs and everybody else have heard those conversations and that hopefully people will feel more comfortable bringing them up. Yes, I think so. And sometimes just saying, I'm going, I can't attend this appointment because I'm attending a worship service or because that's my meditation time or being able to set some of those limits that we talk about as being so important in so many domains of our life. If, you know, to say that for ourselves too, to claim that we are spiritual people in the same way we might say, I need to go to the gym. I like that. So you're both a psychologist and a minister. Yes. And I would be curious from whichever hat that you wear, which is probably (laughs) both of them most of the time, what are some steps that we can take to lean into the opportunities for spiritual and personal growth during these times where we're struggling with our health? How do we take action in our daily lives to grow from these experiences? I do think that is something that, again, we're taking more seriously across the medical communities, but also in our society as a whole. When we talk about work-life balance, if we can also think about it as psychosocial, emotional, spiritual balance. So I think one step that we can take is really to, what I would say, look into the emotional mirror and kind of take some account of what it is that we see as our strengths, as our assets, as our values. What is it that we want to increase? What do we want to tweak a little bit? Who are we as what's the image that we see in that emotional mirror? Then the other thing I think is to also look at making a place for our spiritual, psychological, and social interactions every day. It may be very different for all of us, but if we think about making some time every day for our soul, spirit, psyche, it may be connecting with nature, 
It may be going to some devotional literature. It may be participating in a community of faith, which we know more and more is important, but is also decreasing. So trying to find those people that spiritually will make us be the best that we can be, will call us to a different understanding of ourselves. So I'd like to switch focus to obesity. Okay. I know that you work with patients who are considering or are going through bariatric surgery, for example, or working with other weight-related issues. And we know that this is fraught with emotion, anxiety, and a whole lot of fear. What has surprised you the most about working with patients who struggle with their weight at this level? I think one of the things that has struck me throughout the five to six years that I've really been focusing a lot of work on this is really the burden that so many people who struggle with their weight bear. Some of the stories of how people have been mistreated in school, by their families, by their employers, and how that has just attacked, like a cancer, their self-esteem has always, it's been heartbreaking to share in some of those stories, but it's also been very enlightening that in our society, it is one of those places of discrimination. It's those places of prejudice that people become so damaged emotionally often by what they've experienced. Yeah. That's a little negative, but no, but it's true. But it's true. And I wish that is something that people who maybe have not had to deal with that on a personal level would understand the damage they inflict upon others through their words that are either under the guise of being helpful or, frankly, not under the guise of anything other than pure meanness and nastiness and trying to hurt people. I've never understood why people, and I swear some of them, they feel morally obligated to be incredibly hurtful to people they don't even know. It's as though they are compelled. Yes. And I don't understand that and why they feel justified. This is a topic that near and dear to my heart, but why they feel so justified in hurting somebody so deeply. I think there are a lot of different motivations. So often what I hear people are describing ways that their parents or their families have spoken to them. I think some of that legitimately comes from fear, but the fear that they're not going to be healthy or they're not going to be socially successful or, you know, uh, that somehow their weight or their appearance is going to hold them back in some way. I think some of that is out of fear, but some of it is also, I think that sense of putting someone down makes us feel better about ourselves and that you know, that schoolyard kind of visceral way that we hope we grow through, but some folks don't. I agree with you. And I do believe that some of that is coming from a place of fear because fear makes us say and do things that are somewhat irrational at times. Yes. So it makes sense that 
maybe people don't know how to articulate that in a helpful way that people would be receptive, but that's probably one of the best explanations I've heard in a while. So I appreciate that. It uh, It is heartbreaking. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, anytime we're talking about something like that, it's about power often. And so sometimes, you know, because food is essential for our survival, food issues have a lot of power issues wrapped up into them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another thing that sometimes we don't realize the, the kind of buttons that eating and size and appearance and even in our relationships with each other, what eating behaviors cause. Yeah. When I give talks about my journey, I always bring up that obesity is typically the symptom of something else. I've found that it has had a lot to do with our environment growing up or traumas that have happened. However, we rarely get asked about that when we go to the doctor. Mm. You know, it's always focused on the diet and exercise message and what we weigh, because that's an easy thing to focus on because it's quantifiable and there's a number. But I am curious, why do you think we are avoiding some of the actual root causes of weight issues? Because being overweight most of my life, I never had a physician say, what's really going on here? Did you ever have this happen or that happen? Nobody has ever asked me that. And I'm 60 years old. Wow. Yeah, I do think it's because one, we don't have as much control over people's emotions. It's not easy to say, okay, do this and you'll feel better do this and you'll get over the trauma. This will lift you out of depression, except when we talk about medicines and things. But it's real easy to say, go down to these this number of calories and exercise 30 minutes a day. Okay, that'll fix it. Yeah. Next. Next. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which explains why we have a, a $30 bazillion a year diet industry, because just addressing the the physical part never works. I mean, if you haven't figured out what's going on with your relationship with food, why you're overeating, why you're self-soothing, why you are using food to deal with your feelings or whatever, well, you may lose the weight one, but you're not going to keep it off because all of those things are going to still be there with you. And even to invite someone to think about what is their relationship to food? When do they feel the cravings? When does that urge feel like it can't be satisfied in any other way? So often what we'll find is that it will come back to the self-esteem issues, ways that we may be trying to protect ourselves from feelings or from difficult emotions Sometimes just to protect ourselves from other people. So we won't have to be as close or in in relationships in various ways. So, uh, yeah, I think if it was just about calories, nutrition, and exercise, most of society knows what they need to do. It's that ability and that power to execute it, to be able to make those choices in a consistent way that is going to be the most helpful for them and give them the best opportunities in life. The costs of being overweight and obesity are very clear, again, to most people. They know 
the negative effect on their health, on their heart, on their cancer risk, on their blood pressure, all those kinds of things. But what is it that is maintaining that lack of control? I think those are the emotional pieces that often people are not equipped to address. I agree. I know that our primary care docs are limited with the amount of time they can spend with a patient. Of course, they're being asked to do more in less time. And I'm not blaming anybody for that. I'm really not. But I really would like to see more discussion around, I think it would be helpful for you to go talk to somebody. You know, let's get at the root of what's going on. How about you know what, we can make an appointment to go see Dr. Rischel and see kind of if there's something there that you might be able to explore. Because I do think that would be very helpful in conjunction with all this other advice that we get. We can't get a handle on the emotional and the mental and the spiritual. We're never going to get a handle on the physical. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the other things that in, in working with hundreds of patients now in this journey, most folks know some about why they struggle with their weight. They may not have made all the connections, but a lot of times people understand how they were raised and what role food played in their life if they just think about it. I've really been impressed across the educational board that people really do have a sense of this is how I got here. And as you explore it with someone, a professional would be ideal, but even with friends that are other family members, trusted others, that they can figure out where this came from. So how we can start to heal. My wish is that we would get rid of this idea that people who have weight issues or are obese or morbidly obese are weak and it's the lack of willpower. To be an overweight person in our culture, you are not weak. There is nothing weak about you. It is harder to get up every day and show up or function or physically it's harder, mentally, emotionally, socially, all of those. So It is not a weakness and we are not lazy. I wish we could dispel that right here, right now. Right. It is not a moral issue in the same way that we used to look at alcoholism as a moral issue. It is not. There are some behavioral disturbances that are sabotaging for folks, but I agree. It is not because somebody's weak. The other thing that this research has found is that people are assumed to be less intelligent if they're overweight. And again, that makes no sense. So you brought up food. Of course, we're going to talk about food. (laughs) Um, A huge challenge for many of us who have had weight issues is navigating relationships with people that we love around food. So food is our love language. It is, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care North, South, East, West, what country. Food is our love language. And with that comes expectations, which may not align with our personal health goals now. 
what are some suggestions on navigating that? Because that is a high pressured situation. And I know a lot of people who have gotten healthy, who have lost a lot of weight. And sometimes the answer is they just don't go around their family at the holidays. These are tough situations sometimes. It is. And again, unintentionally, most of the time, (laughs) I, I think sometimes the ones we love the most and that love us the most can be the hardest to deal with in this because it is something that eating somebody's food means that you appreciate them and you honor the traditions and you know what trouble they went to make this for you. And the more you eat, the more you care for them can be that food script that many of us will hold in our head. And similarly, I think sharing food is something that we do in faith communities. It's also something that we do in families Mm -hmm. to join us together to bond in that breaking of the bread. So it becomes a question of first anticipating. I really encourage the folks that I work with to, okay, let's think about what Thanksgiving is going to be like. When the overflowing plate is not the reason that you're there, how can you handle that? What can you, how can you communicate with people and how can you feel sure in yourself that you are worthy, that you love these folks that you're with and they love you? I really do think communication can be very important and sometimes taking the lead on that. You know, I am really proud of the changes that I've been making in my health choices. And I'm really excited to be here with y'all today. I'm going to take a little bit of less. I'm just going to take a bite to taste it. And that's going to be satisfactory to me instead of waiting for the coaxing to take more or you're not eating enough. That can't be all. You could just eat a little bit more. Those are the kinds of things that I hear folks are being told in those social situations. So uh, anticipation, I think, is important. And in the context of that, having a game plan, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And how am I going to respond to some of those feelings that may come up? You know, I'm not doing the right thing. Do you think sometimes all of what we're talking about is based in, especially with families where maybe everybody is heavy, where food is the focus and everybody tends to overindulge? That part of that is because if one person makes the conscious choice and is successful at losing weight and getting healthy, that it reflects negatively on them. Yeah, it feels like a judgment of our family ways, Mm -hmm. of our traditions, of the way you were raised, which can feel like a judgment. And that's clear no matter how we're talking about differentiating Mm -hmm. from our family. It may be dressing a different way, going down a different faith path, all, you know, taking a different accent on all sorts of ways. But when we talk about food and we talk about those social patterns, it's so primal in the same way that we, you know, fancy food for our pets. (laughs) That's the way we, (laughs) yeah, that's the way we show them. We love them. So it's a very primal basic need, but I think that sometimes to, again, to at least keep that clear and 
our own minds if we're the person who has made the change. So maybe if we are making that change and we're anticipating that that may come as a slap in the face Mm -hmm. to some people, or maybe not even that, just you're being different from us. It feels negative that I can't do it as well. May need some extra hugs to go around. We may need some extra compliments to keep it very positive and to let the family know you're still a part. You still value them. You're not judging them yourselves. I think that is part of of the anxiety that comes with making choices and the food pushing that happens, which also, by the way, happens at work. Yes. You know, you can go in and work at a hospital where you think the focus would possibly be on healthful eating. But sometimes when you sit down and you have whatever healthy thing that you've brought and others can make pretty snide comments for what you're choosing to do. And so it's not just you know, with family, but it certainly can be at work too. Right. And I see a lot of people go, how do you even handle that? I want to eat alone at my desk. And I understand that, but we all have to learn how to set boundaries and let people know that that's not an appropriate response. I don't appreciate anyone saying that. I was going to ask Gretchen, how have you navigated that? This time around, because the third time was the charm for me. I only have challenges when there's not a lot of options to choose from. But Mm. most of the time, when I come in prepared with my own lunch, like for example, I have brought my lunch every day now for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I have learned how to be able to participate with everybody. And I even buy pizza for the team. And I don't necessarily eat it, but I will sit there. I always order salad as well, so that anybody who is more food conscious or health conscious has options so you can still participate. Right. And no, because there's nothing worse than having some kind of a gathering and then somebody sitting there making sure everybody else knows they're not going to eat that stuff because that's no fun. We don't like that either. So, you know, I just kind of learned to own my own choices and I don't make excuses and I try not to bring any attention to it but people obviously have noticed I've lost 110 pounds I can't write that but I don't make excuses for why I'm eating healthy either these are my choices I feel good about it and I really try to focus on the people instead of the food and right you know it, it depends on the circumstance but I think for the most part because everybody I hang out with now knows kind of my story. It's expected that they kind of know what I'm going to do. I haven't really had that problem. I still eat cake. I had a piece today because we're (laughs) celebrating a birthday. But I, for the most part, people realize that I may or may not participate in all of it, but I am present and I am grateful to be a part of it. And if anybody says anything, I'm not aware of it. So I don't really, I think I realized at some point I got my self-esteem back and I realized my life was as important as everybody else's. Right. Well, thank you for that. I do think that there are things that we can do to set those boundaries, which are so important and, and to claim the space. 
yeah. which is a little smaller now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully the esteem and the spirit and the soul are a little bigger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know how difficult it is to step out of the role that you may have in your family. And, you know, you could be a hugely successful professional and taking care of yourself and your family and you go home and all of a sudden you're 12 again. Absolutely. And so add a food situation to that. And, Absolutely. Yes. You know, it gets complicated. But, yeah. you know, one of my mantras is that we cannot shame or hate ourselves to good health, but we can love ourselves to good health. I close every show that way. Why do you think there is so much shame attached to weight? And why do we attach our self-worth so strongly to how much we weigh? There's all sorts of thoughts about that. I mean, an obvious one is the media. And I think that sometimes people need to really draw lines for themselves that they don't continue to consume things that are magazines, feeds, television shows that are making them feel worse about themselves because of their size in comparison mm -hmm. to these people who spend their lives being the size that they are and, yeah. and taking the pictures and that sort of thing. And I think the whole media aspect is an important contribution, but I don't think that's all that it is. I really do think that there's a sense that our bodies and our eating and our size is something that, as we were talking about earlier, has been misunderstood as just a matter of willpower or moral rectitude. Or if we think about fitness, we think about that not just in terms of the body concept, but also that the body reflects how you are as a human being or as a soul. So I think that's some of the shame that comes from it. And just that, you know, we talk about it in Christianity is the sins of the flesh. I think sometimes there's a sense that our body is shameful and that if I don't have the perception that we've treated it right or treated it as in conforming to our society. If we feel like our body is out of conformity with society, we feel like the odd one and something that we should be ashamed of. So I think that's part of the places that it comes from. It's hard because it is something that is very deep and the guilt and the shame is often the monster that we have to hide and then to heal we have to look at it and decide whether that's rational at all. I also think some of that can come from whatever the early traumas were, which often have shame attached to them and guilt and all those other negative emotions. But I think that is actually, I think that would make a really good future podcast. We could dig into that. I mean, there's so many different aspects of this that I do think we need to talk about. We need to have these conversations, even though they're hard, even though they're uncomfortable, but people are living these things every day. And I think we really have to be able to talk about these issues with compassion and with love and with the whole spirit of helping each other navigate them. And which, of course, which is 
why I wanted you to be on the show to begin with. But as you know, this show is all about focusing on the daily work that we all have to do to reach our health-related goals. So what are two or three actions that we can take today to be kinder to ourselves and more accepting of ourselves, no matter what we weigh? I ran across a slogan that I really liked. It was stop, drop, and feel. Okay. <laughs> and I loved it because so often the urges to run away, the urges to eat, the cravings that we feel sometimes are like a fire. We feel like we're on fire. And so I loved the idea of stopping when we have that urge or when we have that negative thought, stopping and dropping, which means sitting with it, mm-hmm. feeling it, and then being able to reframe or restructure, to see what the feeling is, to identify it, to allow the whatever the emotion is to be a part of our life without judgment and to decide how we walk forward from that. I just thought, you know, in those times, particularly that we feel that strong urge to do something, the compulsion to stop, drop, and feel. I thought that was very clever and it spoke to me in different ways. I think another step that we can take to having more self-love is to, again, go into what our basic values are. Where does our worth come from? To think about it and identify How can we participate in that self-awareness, that self-worth, that joy today? Finding some way to appreciate what's happened to us, but also what we have done. What have we done today? What have we felt today? What have we experienced today that has made a difference in who we are or in the life of somebody else. And I really do think that reflection makes a difference. The stopping also that I was talking about in the first slogan, I think helps us to realize that we do not have to be pushed by the old traumas, the old patterns, the other people's thoughts or judgments of us, that we can make a decision for ourselves. That was part of what I was thinking about was just that if we can identify what we're feeling and then also find some activity to participate in that allows us to validate those ultimate values. You know, Dorothy, this was everything that I thought it would be. I feel like I have gotten the biggest spiritual hug by getting to spend this time with you. Thank you so, so much for spending this time with us. I know that we all are going to take away some really valuable, not only good information, but just ways of embracing ourselves and understanding how important it is to love ourselves as much as we love other people. I really think we have to make that priority. So it goes without saying, I truly hope that you will join me again. It's very mutual. Thank you for having me. It's really been a delight. So what about you? 
what resonated with you the most about today's show? What questions remain unanswered? I'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a note by visiting my website at www.gretchenholmesphd.com, where all of my previous podcasts are located, along with additional information to help you on your journey. You can also sign up for podcast alerts and upcoming events. Finally, from me to you, remember to love and celebrate yourself now, today. Don't wait until you feel worthy. You already are. Loving yourself is the only way to good health. Until next time. The information on this podcast is not intended nor implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Mm -hmm.